2014, and we want to begin with a word of prayer. Father, we have come to the end of this first day of the week, and many of us are weary, many of us have sorrow, many of us have gladness overflowing in our hearts. Some of us are, are tempted to, to the point of anguish, some struggling with faith, some rejoicing in the discovery of the most profound forgiveness that a human being can experience, some poor, some rich, some sick, some healthy all of us coming together as one body and asking for Your blessing to fall upon us in, in such a way, Father, that we are drawn into Your presence and You into ours. And we sense it with our heart and our mind and our soul. And we pray that in this hour we not only become transfixed on the glory of Your compassion and mercy for us, but inspired by the greatness of Your holiness and the greatness of the beauty of Your majesty as we gaze upon it, Father, and in gazing upon Your beauty, that it calmed the, the stream of anxiety that is beneath everything. So bless us tonight, Father, as we worship and open our hearts up to You. We pray now for help in opening our minds up to You by asking You, Father, to bless us with eyes that, that truly see and ears that truly hear in order for us to discern truth in Your Word and make all of the right applications to our life. Bless us as a church and keep us united and in harmony we pray to, to do the hard work of being a disciple every day. And we pray for your blessing upon us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Did everybody get an outline? Raise your hand if you need one. There's a couple down here at the front. <coughs> Thank you, Eric and Prentice, for, for passing those out. We're going to be looking at the Decalogue tonight, and I just want to begin with a statement. We won't talk about it very much because we've been talking about it a lot at the beginning of the other sermons, but just a reminder of, of how we're approaching Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. See, understanding that the Bible is not a collection of random stories. It's not random. It's put together with purpose. There is a thread. There is a theme of, of, of narrative that runs from Genesis to Revelation, the creation of the world, the fall of, of mankind and sin entering the world and death on its heels, all the way to Revelation where we see heaven and earth merged again and God and His people in, in, in the same vicinity, in the same city, in the same place. The Bible is not a collection of random stories, but it's one story about God, about man, about what went wrong and what God is doing to put it back together. Now this morning, we, we covered the entire book of Exodus. And what we want to do, and, and sometimes you have to debate what, what you can and what you can't do, but I think it's, it's incredibly important 
that we come back tonight and think about the Decalogue, which is the ten words, or the way that we say it in the Western world, the Ten Commandments. And I, I want to begin with a quote from a fellow by the name of Patrick Miller, who is a professor of Old Testament at Princeton. And in writing back uh, uh, over 20 years ago about the, uh, the, the Ten Commandments, he writes, the specific terms used for the Decalogue are, of course, command or commandment, and also word. In both cases, we are told something about these entities that points primarily to their origin. They are the words of God, and they are imperative and commanding in nature. Once one receives them, therefore, not as a body of law that has been worked up to cover all sorts of situations and matters that may arise, but as direct address from God about the most basic things in life. End of quote. In other words, what Dr. Miller is saying is that they, the, the Ten Commandments are not just a general set of rules for the general populace as much as they are a direct word from God to the individual who makes up the nation of Israel. It is you shall not. But it's you. It's not you plural. It is you singular. It is a direct word spoken to every individual Israelite at the foot of that mountain. And to everyone who entered into a covenant with God after that, it is a specific word. It is a personal word. It's the teaching of God about what is necessary to maintain faith and relationship with God, even as they, as a nation, as a people, are about to enter into the promised land, which is filled with a pantheon of Canaanite gods and rival explanations for the world. It is a personal, direct word to the individual about keeping faith about keeping relationship with God, but it's more than just keeping it straight. Now to the story. Three months after leaving Egypt, the people arrive in the wilderness of Sinai and they camp in front of the mountain. And Moses goes up on the mountain and God says, here's something very specific that I want you to tell the people. And in verses 4, 5, and 6 of chapter 19, he says, you yourselves, and now he's telling Moses to repeat this to the people, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. What did he do to Egypt? Ten commandments, the, or excuse me, the ten plagues and the death of the firstborn, the institution of the Passover, and the mighty nation of Egypt is brought to its knees and the people are released from their slavery. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. This passage is known as the eagles' wings passage. How I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all of the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. And the people hear these words and they get excited and they vote yes. And God manifests Himself on the mountain and it becomes the most holy place on the planet because this is where God is in reality. And no one is even allowed to come close enough to touch the mountain, so holy is it. And on the third day, it all comes to pass. There's thunder and there's lightning flashes and there's a thick cloud and there's a trumpet blast. And the people come to the foot of the mountain and the Lord descends in fire and smoke and the whole mountain just quakes with His presence. And God, after Moses speaks to the mountain, God speaks like thunder, the text says, and calls Moses to the top of the mountain. 
And Moses goes. And there he delivers, God delivers to Moses the ten words which we know as the Ten Commandments. And those Ten Commandments are, and you can say them with me, they're up here on the screen. You shall have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall have no idols. You shall, number three, not take the name of the Lord in vain. Number four, keep the Sabbath. Number five, honor your father and mother. Number six, you shall not commit adultery. Number seven, you, oh, excuse me, you shall not commit murder. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Number eight, you shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness, which means to lie. And number ten, you shall not covet. And a covenant, covenant is made between God and the people. Now, what's the big deal about the Ten Commandments? I mean, I see the seriousness of temptation as they're going into the promised land. And they're going to, to see rival explanations for the world and how the world works and how human relationships work and, and, a, and a rival worldview and a rival value system. And they're going to be tempted to buy into that and to, to have a, 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 a heart that moves away from God. So what is really the big deal about these Ten Commandments in terms of, of the relationship with God and the people? Well, I, I want to step out of the Ten Commandments for a second. Uh, many of you uh, English major sorts and, and, and people that like to go to plays know the name of Eugene O'Neill, The Iceman Cometh, Long Day's Journey into Night. Uh, on the centennial of his birthday, back in 1988, Time Magazine ran some, some articles on Eugene O'Neill, and there was a quote in there that I thought was, was incredibly insightful, even though it's not very positive. And O'Neill says, and this is after you know, he has gained so much publicity and so much fame and so much acclaim, so much achievement, so much significance in the literary world of, of you know, United States in the 20th century. He says, the fame isn't worth the candle. If I got any real spiritual satisfaction out of success in the theater, it might compensate. But I don't. Success is flat, spiritually speaking, as failure. After the unprecedented critical claim to morning becomes Electra, I was in bed nearly a week, overcome by the profoundest gloom and nervous exhaustion. Even the reception of days without end didn't do that to me. In fact, by contrast, it was invigorating because it made me mad. End of quote. The point he's making is that even great success like that doesn't begin to fill the greatness of the human soul. It doesn't fill the greatness of the human soul. People can fill the soul or try to fill the soul like a bucket with this kind of acclaim and this kind of achievement or whatever it is that they see as significant in the world, but it doesn't nearly satisfy. Not nearly. And this is why creation theology is important. We are made in the image of God. And we are made to be filled with that kind of glory and that kind of wonderment. And believe it or not, obedience is key. It's key. Listen carefully to this verse out of 1 John. If anyone, what? Obeys. If anyone obeys His Word, love. Not two words that we really see together very often. Obedience and love. Love and obedience. If anyone obeys His Word, love 
for God is truly made complete in them. Now, I know a lot of people that have tried the Ten Commandments and all they did was swamp them and crush them and make them feel terrible. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that they did not consider the nature and the purpose of obedience. Now, the call of obedience is to freedom. It sounds anachronistic. It sounds like an oxymoron. The call of obedience in most secular minds is not a call to freedom, but a call to enslavement to, to, to rules and to regulations. It's, it's legalism. But the call of obedience in the Bible is to freedom. Part of the call to discipleship is obedience. And what is, by definition, obedience? Obedience is a disciplined willingness to have your will crossed. Obedience, and let me say that again, obedience is a disciplined willingness to have your will crossed. Let me give you an example. You wake up on Monday morning, many of you will have to get up and go to work tomorrow. And you wake up on Monday morning after a busy Sunday and you're tired and you've stayed up until about 10 o'clock watching Downton Abbey on Masterpiece Theater. And you're tired. And you wake up Monday, Monday morning and it feels absolutely right to stay in bed. What you want to do is to keep sleeping. You want to continue sleeping. But this is where the physical discipline makes you say no. You're disciplined, and you say no, and you lace up the running shoes, and you go for a jog. And after you come in from the jog, the discipline still has to be there because you want three chocolate-covered donuts for breakfast, a big glass of chocolate milk, and waffles with maple syrup because you love the taste of sugar. But you say no. You say no because of your cholesterol concerns. There are things that you want. There are things that give you pleasure. There are things that feel great. But you know that they lead to death. And so you cross your will to do something that leads to life. Physical freedom comes from finding the right kinds of restrictions. And because you jog, and because you watch your diet, and because you... You, you go to sleep at the right time at night and you get the proper hours of sleep every night and you get up and you go to work and you make an income and all of those physical disciplines kick in. You are free to do so many things in this world. Example two, take a giant ship. A giant ship is not free on the dry land, but you put that ship in the ocean, it can go wherever it wants to because it's in the right kind of environment, the environment that it was built for and designed for. The point is, is that real freedom comes from honoring the right restrictions based on your design and doing what you were built to do. Unless we're here by mistake. Unless we are here by mistake, then we have to incorporate creation theology. We were built and designed by God, and we must let God cross our will, even when it looks like doing our own will is pretty good and is going to taste pretty good and, and feel pretty good and, and lead to a lot of pleasure. We must let God cross our will, even when it looks pretty good to do our own thing. And then the second thing is that the reason for obedience, the call of obedience is to freedom. The reason for obedience is relationship. 
The reason for obedience is relationship. I go back to 1 John chapter 2. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not do what He commands is a... is a what, church? A liar. The truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys His Word, love, there it is again, obeying love, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in Him. Whoever claims to live in Him must live as Jesus did. What John seems to be saying there is that obedience is the means to the end. The end is the relationship. The end is intimacy with God. The love of God. And there is nothing more important than this. Now think back to Exodus chapter 19. What God has told Moses to say to the people. Listen to the words again. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. To Myself. To Myself. Now, if you obey Me fully and keep My covenant, then out of all nations, you will be My treasured possession. Although the whole earth is Mine, you will be for Me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He does not say to Moses, go to the people and say, if you obey Me, I will bring you out. He does not say, if you obey Me perfectly, then I'll save you. If you obey Me, then I'm going to bring you out. It's instead, I brought you out in order for us, for the two of us, to have a relationship based in covenant. It is to live intimately with Him within the boundaries of wise relationship. Israel did not do a cotton-picking thing, did not do anything to bring themselves out of the slavery of Egypt. The text says that they believed Moses' message when he said, I am, has sent me back here to bring you out. They believed the message and then they sat back and watched God do all the work. And now God brings them to the mountain. He says, I brought you out to be with me. And here's what it means for us to live together. I think about marriage. Why do, do people get cold feet before they get married? I, I've, I've done over 200 marriages, and I can only think of, of, of a handful. On, on one hand, the number of times uh, we're sitting in a back room, and the groom goes, i got to get out of here. I don't know what I'm doing. I've got to get out of here. And I said, well, you know, there's a door right there, and I'm not going to stop you. But let me ask you a couple of questions. Why all of a sudden are you getting the cold feet? And we have a big conversation about it. And what it boils down to is this. For the first time, the reality of marrying a human being hits home. The reality of marrying flesh and blood, bone, personality, disposition, you realize that you're not marrying a rock or a fountain pen, but you are marrying a live human being. And the second thing that they realize is that they love that person. 
And believe it or not, they're getting cold feet because they love that person. They love that human being, and the more they love that person, the more they realize how important that person is to them, the more they realize that they have less and less control over their own life. You know, you can do with a fountain pen, you can do with a rock, whatever you want. You, you can do whatever you want with that fountain pen, that car, that house, that rock, that coin, whatever it is in your life that you need to meet that goal, you can do with that fountain pen or that rock or that house or whatever. You can, you can use that fountain pen every day. You can look at that rock every day. You can go into that house every day and not feel any emotional obligation to it. But a real person has quirks. A real life person has kinks and horrors and hates and nightmares and appetites and loves and sweetness. And the closer you get to a person, you see those needs as parts of the relationship. And God is calling Israel into relationship with Him. And He's saying, this is what this relationship looks like. When you're in relationship with Me, I am foremost. I am premier. I am preeminent. I am the priority. I'm the core. I'm the focus. You shall have no other gods before Me. And you know what? When they messed up on that first commandment, it really messed everything else up. Because once those idols, whatever form they might take, began to enter into that relationship that was to be mutually exclusive between Israel and its God, then the love and the commitment and the desire and the service and the obedience and all of that covenant emotion and obligation began to be diminished as that energy was focused on the idol. And because there were other gods before that God, then it began to affect because if... If their commitment to God is diminished, then their commitment to His Torah, His Word is diminished. And when that Torah is diminished in the eyes and the hearts in the minds of the people, then it begins to affect all of their other relationships and their community begins to fall apart. And that's why Amos says, how is it that all of these easy-to-understand commands of God are being practiced pridefully in the middle of His people? He says, you'll have no other gods before me. And you'll respect my name. And you won't have any idols. And there will be at least one day a week where you will think about me and think about me. You're not going to work. You're not going to do anything else. But you're going to consider creation and you're going to consider me and you're going to consider my word. And it's going to be a Sabbath. That day of rest is a day of focus on me. And because we're all in this together, you're not going to kill each other. You're not going to commit adultery. You're not going to covet. You're not going to lie to each other. And Israel says yes. Israel says yes. I think, though, some centuries later, to a garden on the side of the Mount of Olives. And there the Messiah is by Himself at the beginning of His passion. And in a manner of speaking, He's beginning to get cold feet.
And he says to God, I want this cup to pass from me. If it can be within your will, I don't want to do this. But he is obedient to his relationship with God and to the mission of God. And we see that agony. There are sweat drops of blood that are that are falling on the ground as he is struggling with what it means to be obedient and intimate and in relationship with God. And there you see obedience and love mingled. Have you ever asked yourself what it was that kept Jesus on the cross? Was it the nails? Was it the Roman army? Was the, 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 the Son of God completely unable to come down off of that cross because of nails or army or wounds or torture? What was it that kept Him on that cross? Obedience to God and love. And love. What God is doing when He gives these Ten Commandments is to say to Israel, this is how we're intimate with each other. This is how we relate to each other. This is how we have relationship. And this is how we love one another. And this is how I become special to you and you become special to me throughout all of this world, throughout all of creation, out of all of the nations, even though the entire world is mine. You're going to be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. Obedience and love. And even though Israel is going to fail miserably about that, there is a prophet who is going to come and talk about the special servant of God who is going to come. And all of our iniquities are going to fall on Him. And God is going to crush Him because of our sin. But it's by His wounds that we are going to be healed. And it's about His obedience and His love mingled together that makes all the difference in the relationship that you and I have with God this very day. Obedience and the love of God. Just going to lead us in a song. And if there's any way that our church can minister to you and bless you in your relationship with God or help you in your relationship with God, our shepherds, our elders are going to be down here at the front. They're ready to receive you and to talk to you and to pray with you. We want you to come down and talk to them now as we stand and praise God together. above of Jesus and His glory.